Well, for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we are in a sermon series in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and, uh, and you're at a good spot. You're still at the very beginning of it. We're still in chapter 1, although we're three sermons in. So let me just really quickly kind of recap verses 1 through 9. We're going to start in verse 10 this morning, so let me just briefly recap in verses 1 and 2. We have Paul's salutation. He says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's who's writing. And he's writing to the church of God that's in Corinth. And this church of God, these people, this local church, he describes as being sanctified or made holy in Jesus Christ. That's in a declarative or positional sense. And that they have been called then, having been called holy, they've been called to become holy as saints, to live out that holiness in what we might describe more aptly as a progressive sanctification when we look at our justification and sanctification. And then he gives them this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, because they are God's church, has indeed shown his favor upon them in this particular way that they now have peace with God through Jesus Christ the Savior. And then he goes on in his his opening to give thanks for them, uh, which is is just wonderful. He gives thanks to God for God's grace to the church. That's where his direction of thanksgiving goes. uh, Because God has been gracious to them, Uh, they have become believers in the gospel, which has been confirmed in and among them. Uh, There's more evidence that they're spirit-filled people because they've been given spiritual gifts. In fact, they've been made rich in the gifts of the Spirit. And uh, they understand that they will be held guiltless all the way to the end. God is going to sustain them through this life to the very end when Jesus returns and they will be found guiltless or blameless or made complete in their holiness in him then. So that's a wonderful thing uh, that a church uh, can give thanks to God for. And so he's called them into what Paul calls the fellowship of Christ. That's kind of how he describes the church here. And I wanted to say those things because a lot of those words and phrases are going to pop up today. And I just want you to know they're, they're not coming from me. They're coming from Paul in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So we get to verse 10, and Paul is finally addressing the first of many problems in the church. And the problem is division. There's division in the church. They're not the united fellowship of Christ that God has called them to be. Not at all. But, true to his word, back in verses 8 and 9, God is faithful to send them Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. You see how that works. Paul is going to address this one problem of division in the church, beginning here in chapter 1, verse 10, going all the way to chapter 4, verse 21. Now, we said there's many problems in the church, and this one problem is going to take up almost four entire chapters. This one section of Corinthians is longer than several of the New Testament letters. So the problem of division, or we could put it positively, right? We could say the positive goal of unity is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church in Corinth is divided Divided over preachers and how they preach. Divided over apostles and their authority. Divided over worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God. Over worldly boasting and boasting in Christ. Frankly, what they're really divided in is that they're divided over their true identity. They're divided over what is true spirituality and what is a false 
spirituality. And the result is that they have made a mess of the fellowship of Christ that God has called them to. But the fracturing is mostly, throughout, centered around teachers. So let's read verses 10 to 17 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of God. So if you want to follow along on your sermon outline, it begins with this sermon theme. The gospel of the cross of Christ is the power that unites the minds and judgments of believers over against their individualism and preferences. So that the church is not divided, but united in the fellowship of Christ. Now here's the, here's the picture that Paul's painting for us. This is a divided church. This is a divided church, and they're not, they're not split in half. They're fractured into many divisions. They're kind of shattered. And each group is quarreling with the other groups, brother against brother. This already sounds bad. And here's the thing. They're not divided over doctrine. Usually when we read one of Paul's letters, he's correcting someone's bad doctrine. A false teacher has crept into the church. He's saying something that's wrong, and he has to correct doctrine. They're not divided over doctrine. They're divided in their practice. The city of Corinth, remember, is it's the place to go to make a name for yourself. People are aggressive. They're pushing others down so that they can get ahead. They're, they're self-promoting. They're competitive, valuing notoriety and reputation. They're, they're kind of a celebrity-driven culture, valuing the spectacular over the ordinary. Sound familiar? See, the attitude and the way of life in the city of Corinth has been brought into the church in Corinth. They're using the same behaviors and the, the techniques that they would use in business and politics and social settings, but they're using them in the church. I mean, we have to be careful because they are transferable skills. If we do them out there, we can do them in here, but they're not supposed to be transferred into the church of God. Remember when Jesus' disciples wanted to secure high positions in Jesus' kingdom? And Jesus said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. It's not that way 
in the church. So this church is in a mess of disunity because of spiritual one-upmanship. They're competing to be seen as the most spiritual person in the church. So what, God, what does a God who is faithful to sustain them do? He sends them Jesus' word through the Apostle Paul. Look again at verse 10. This is the one that kicks us off. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is so appropriate. This is so encouraging. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is appealing to the brethren. That's very soft. I mean, I think Paul probably wants to jump on them with both feet, but he says, I appeal to you, and he calls them brothers. He's appealing to the brethren in Corinth by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's appealing to them that they would agree. That they would agree in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than calling them idiots, he calls them brothers. Rather than jumping on them with both feet, he appeals to them to bring about agreement. Agree about what? Well, we already know that generally, they're to agree to become what they already are. They have been declared holy in Christ, and they have been called to become holy in Christ. To agree to live together in the grace of God and the peace of Christ, which they have as a church of God in Christ. See, Paul's greeting and thanksgiving in verses 1 through 9 were not superfluous. They were purposeful. He was laying groundwork. Agree that you believe the gospel of Christ. Agree that you've been enriched with spiritual gifts. Agree to use them to build up the fellowship of Christ, not to tear down the fellowship of Christ, and to pursue holiness until Christ returns. Generally, they're to agree in that. More specifically, to address this problem, they're to live in agreement without division and live in unity. Live in agreement without division and in unity. It's an Oreo cookie of oneness and fellowship. You see the levels, right? Bottom layer, agree. Middle layer, no division. Top layer, unity. This is not hard to understand. This is not a complex doctrinal problem that Paul's drawing out. This is a practical problem. It's easy for us to understand. Don't be divided. Be united. That's it. And the solution is, for the gospel that they already agree in to be applied in their lives and in the church. The gospel believed needs to be the gospel lived. You who have been sanctified now live as saints, Paul would say. The appeal is negatively stated, that's grammatically stated, negatively stated, have no division, and it's positively stated. Have the same mind and judgment. So, so let's look quickly at each of those. Being in gospel agreement and having no division. The word translated division is, is a word that can easily be translated schism. And it is elsewhere. Schism. It's used to describe like, like a tear or a rip in fabric. These divisions are ripping apart the fabric of the church. Again, they're not divided over doctrine. These are brothers who say they agree that Christ is Lord, and yet they somehow feel justified in causing these divisions. The gospel does not divide. 
Look look at Jesus' prayer for his church in John chapter 17. Turn back with me just a few pages. Find John chapter 17 and verse 20. Jesus is praying to God the Father about those who would become church family believers through the preaching of the apostles back then. So he's praying for the, the people in the church in Corinth, and he's praying for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, these disciples here with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus and the gospel bring unity. The people in each of these factions in the Corinthian church were trying to stand out as more spiritual than the others. I mean, they, they were following the roadmap of their Corinthian culture. You know, we're, we're the really spiritual ones. We're, we're incredibly spiritual people. It's, it's kind of a power play. Not that they wanted the responsibility of teaching or leading. They were just competing for attention. To be the spiritual celebrities in the church and to have their opinions sought after. Of course, the problem is that division testifies against the gospel. So if the way you are practicing your spirituality is tearing apart the fellowship, stop it. That's what Paul's saying. You're not practicing true spirituality. When you see division, stop. It's not working, whatever you're doing. True, holy spirituality is grounded in God's wisdom, activated by God's spirit, and it results in God's love. That is our love for one another. Love of the brethren. Have you noticed that division is inherent in every worldly context? Even in family. We've all experienced division in our families to some extent at one time or another. It happens with people, right? And we say, well, it's because family relationships are complicated. Yes, they do get complicated. And the same complications can happen in the church. We should expect that. So Paul's first appeal is, stop dividing. Put on the brakes. You have to agree, you have to agree to not allow division in the church. And you have to consciously act to not be the cause of division in the church. Because division testifies against the gospel. Division's bad, Unity is good. It's simple. We get this. Be in gospel unity, having the same mind and judgment. Now, the, the word translated be united, it's, it's an active word. You have to work at being united. It's, it's the same word that is mending. It's translated as mending when Peter mends his fishing nets. That's interesting. It's the word restore. When we're told that those who are spiritual among you are to restore the sinner in a spirit of gentleness. Instead of being united, the NASB reads, be made complete. Be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So there's work to be done to be united. 
There's perpetual mending and restoring taking place in order to maintain completeness. It doesn't happen by accident. But what does it mean to be united in the same mind and the same judgment? Well, first, here's what it doesn't mean. Unity does not mean uniformity. We don't have to look alike, talk alike, and act alike. I mean, the glory of the gospel is that it unites very different people. The same mind does not mean we will agree on every single issue. Not even every single theological issue, but it does mean we'll agree on the main issues. The inerrancy of Scripture. The sovereignty of our Creator God. The total depravity of mankind. God's just judgment and condemnation of our sin against Him. The redemption of sinners accomplished by Jesus in His sin-atoning death on the cross and His life-giving resurrection from the dead. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The inevitable return, the unavoidable coming day of Christ's glorious return. And the final separating of the wicked unto hell and the righteous unto heaven. We agree on what Jude called the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We agree on the gospel. Well, what, about, what about ecclesiological differences? Well, it's a little different. We understand that there are theological understandings that cause us to worship in certain gatherings and not others. Things like believer's baptism over infant baptism. That does not mean that we are not like-minded in the gospel. We agree to disagree on such matters, and we're for one another if we're for the gospel. What about different theological interpretations in the same church? Well, even that happens. We understand that there are important matters of theology that we may differ on, and we can still worship in the same church family. For example, the specific ordering of events at Christ's return. These need not be matters of division. Unity without uniformity means that diversity is actually baked into the church. We are different parts of the one body. We each serve the church in different ways. We are diverse in our skills and abilities, diverse in spiritual gifts, assigned by the Spirit, assigned different responsibilities. P perhaps an army is a better metaphor. We have different ranks and roles, but we're clear on the same mission. We support one another in different ways while working together in various ways, willing to sacrifice our individuality to live united under one common flag. Back to the church. Having the same mind is having the same gospel framework that governs our thinking. And having the same judgment is each of us making decisions and choices living out that gospel in each of our individual and practical lives. That takes hard work. That takes hard work. And the Corinthians are not doing the hard work. It's not that they didn't agree in Christ crucified. They did. It's that they weren't applying Christ crucified to their daily living with one another. In that practical way, they're missing the gospel. And in missing the gospel, they were missing out on true spirituality. They were missing out on things like humility. 
weakness. Grace, holiness, peace. Instead, they were pursuing a spirituality that their culture would value to be strong and powerful, to be successful and boastful, to say, I'm a very spiritual person, look at me. I know we're all spiritual, but I'm very spiritual. Which, by the way, is not something that we're immune to. So let's look at Paul's very interesting response to this division in the church. I don't think it goes where we thought it would go. But here's where it goes, beginning in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Remember that Paul is writing from Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, Paul has received first-hand information, a report from members of the church in Corinth that they are quarreling with one another. Now you know that quarreling is, you know what it is, and you, you know it's not good when it happens. And the word translated quarreling is regularly translated strife. Same words. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Really? Those who cause strife and division will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is, strife is a serious sin. Strife in the church is a, is a horrific breach. So what are they quarreling over? They were identifying themselves by their favorite teachers. And then, claiming to be more spiritual than others because of the teacher whom they identified with. I identify with Paul. Maybe because Paul was first, the one who started the church. Paul's the OG apostle in Corinth. I stand with Apollos. Maybe because he was the more eloquent speaker. He's certainly described as such, so Apollos is kind of the superstar. I'm loyal to Cephas. Who's Peter? Peter has preached in Corinth. Maybe because Peter, Peter's the alternative. Peter, Peter walked with Jesus. Some say, I follow Christ, which sounds right. Oh, so they're the good ones. No. No, they're not. They're as divisive and quarreling a faction just as the others. Paul's saying they need to be corrected too. You know, they are, they're I think the reaction to the other factions. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. I don't need anybody. I follow Jesus. Right? They're claiming the ultimate spirituality by saying, we follow only the Messiah. I don't need any of those teachers. 
We don't need any of those apostle types. I'm not sure what they look like today. They, they, might, be, they might be like red-letter Christians. You know, the only re- words they read in their Bible are the words that Jesus spoke that are printed in red and everything else doesn't really matter. Or, or, or if you were standing next to a group of them, you might overhear them say, me, Jesus, and my Bible. It's all I need. Not those churches full of hypocrites. I tend to think that they're the most schismatic of all the factions. They hold themselves out as some type of purists. And what's all the division about? Getting the most clicks. Hoping to trend and go viral. I mean, they're they're only retweeting and reposting their favorite quotes from the teachers they identify with and want others to identify with them by hitting the like and subscribe button. This is important to understand. This is not the fault of the teachers. Paul's not blaming Apollos or saying that Peter preached wrong. It's not the fault of any of the teachers. Paul and Apollos and Peter and Jesus all preach right doctrine and true gospel. The teachers are faithful. The problem is with the people in the church behaving according to the values of Corinth. That's where the problem lies. They have been given a true holy spirituality, but they are pursuing a false spirituality, a worldly spirituality, according to the spirit of the age. So Paul hits the reset button with three rhetorical questions, the answers to which are no, no, and no. Is Christ divided? No. Then why are you dividing his body on earth, the church? Was Paul crucified for you? No. Then why are you identifying with Paul and other spiritual teachers when you are eternally identified with Christ crucified? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. You were all baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, why are you claiming a spiritual identity based on the one who baptized you rather than the one into whom you were baptized? And just like that, Paul expresses the gospel they agree with and makes obvious their wrong applications of it. Your identity is in Christ. Your true spirituality is in Christ. You made a public profession of your loyalty to Christ when you were baptized. So practice what you believe and do it in unity with one another in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. This baptism thing seems to be one of the distinctions that they're using to try to puff up their own spiritual credentials. And so Paul jumps right on it. Here's the the gist of his argument. If people are saying that they follow Paul because they were baptized by Paul, he's glad that he baptized few people so that few people would make that mistake. Simple enough? So he says, thank God I baptized none of you. Well, except Crispus and Gaius. But everybody knows that. And they're not claiming to be, you know, to be in Paul. Wait, 
I remember baptizing Stephanus and the believers in his household. Mm, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. I mean, at first read, it's almost a little comical. Paul sounds kind of uncertain. He's just kind of rummaging back through his mind, trying to remember, who did I baptize? Who are those people? He goes back, you know, if I was Paul and I was writing this letter, I would go back and edit out those lines before mailing the letter. But those remarks actually prove the point Paul is making. It really doesn't matter who baptized the believers in the church in Corinth. It's an intentional point that he's making. What matters is they were believers and that they were indeed baptized. So Paul goes on to say in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. My apostolic calling is to preach the gospel. Paul's not minimizing believers' baptism, not at all. He's giving priority to the preaching of the gospel that people believe and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because baptism means nothing if you don't believe the gospel. So Paul corrects the Corinthians' misplaced value of baptism. Salvation comes by saving faith in Christ. It's followed then by baptism, which is the public profession of your faith in Christ. Faith comes first, then obedience to Christ's command for his disciples to be baptized comes second. Paul, Paul paints this picture of baptism for us in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our identity is fixed in Christ crucified. We have the same true holy spirituality, grounded in the wisdom of God, activated by the Spirit of God, that results in the love of God in unity in the church. Boasting of a superior spirituality based on secondary things, like who baptized you, or worldly things for that matter, will necessarily bring quarrels and tears and rips and division into the fabric of the church because Christ is not divided. I want to take a minute and I want to make just one application here before we move on. We could, you know, we could use this as a jumping off place for all of the ways that we bring division into the church, you and me. But the problem in the text is actually quite specific. It's actually quite narrow. It has to do with people identifying with teachers in order to define their own individual spirituality independent of their own church. Do you see those things? What might that look like in our day? It's a real benefit that we are able to access so much good 
Bible teaching and preaching today. I mean, just tap on your phone and you have access to hundreds of good, conservative Bible teachers. I'm not even talking about the bad ones. I think there's thousands of those. You know you need to be discerning about who and what you listen to, or you will be proven foolish. If you're not sure, it's best to stay close to home. But I'm not talking about them. And in a sense, I'm not really talking about the good teachers either. Paul didn't have any problem with the good teachers. They're being faithful. Paul is warning us about what we do with those teachers. How we might use those teachers to puff ourselves up. Why we use that teacher or this teacher and take on a label of identification that is not Christ. See, the thing that we have in common with the Corinthians, I think, is our hyper-individualism. They have it too. By that I mean we are a part of a body. Paul says you are the church of God. We are a part of the body, but we act like we are not. Do you come to worship and Bible study and prayer gatherings to be open and honest in your participation? Willing to be seen as less knowledgeable than others? Or do you come to worship gatherings, and maybe not to Bible studies or prayer gatherings at all, but preloaded? Do you come preloaded to boast in the latest hard-hitting argument that you heard on one of your favorite podcasts? I need, you, I need you to hear the nuance in this. We should all pursue spiritual growth. We should all read good books and listen to good podcasts and learn how to grow in the faith. So that we can participate with one another in the fellowship of the church. We need really smart, mature Christians to show up. We need really weak, faint-hearted Christians, immature in everything they do, to show up so that we together can grow in the love and in the faith. Not so we can make ourselves appear more spiritual than others in the local church. Frankly, we have been ill-served by decades of individualism in evangelicalism. As you look back over the landscape, do you see that? My faith, my spirituality, my journey. No wonder we are so enamored with celebrity Christians who don't even know we exist. And YouTube preachers who have no responsibility for us and will not give an account for our souls on the day. We've allowed ourselves... Worldly self-promotion to bring it right into the church in spiritual self-promotion. You see, at the, heart, at the heart of the problem in Corinth and here today 
is the pursuit of an individual spirituality over and against our shared, given, and received spirituality. We are the church of God. We have been sanctified in Christ. We have been called to be saints together in the fellowship of Christ. Paul says that we need to live and act like that. I would put it this way. The church is where it's at. You can go do your own thing. People will applaud you, but the church is where it's at. Paul wraps up in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now again, Paul's not minimizing the ordinance of believers' baptism, but emphasizing the primacy of the gospel preaching in a gospel-believing church. Believe in the gospel and you'll be saved. That's Paul's focus. The church will confer baptism on those who profess faith in the true gospel and whose lives give credible evidence of their profession that they are actually living like saints. Notice here that Paul Paul addresses the way to preach. Did you catch that? He says, preach the gospel, but not with words of eloquent wisdom. Is he trying, is he saying that you should try to preach poorly? (laughs) I promise I'm doing the best I can. (laughs) He's not saying that bad preaching is better than good preaching. That phrase, words of eloquent wisdom, has a particular meaning. It's kind of a technical term. We'll talk a little bit more about it next week, but there are, there are two basic competing forms of public speaking or rhetoric in Corinth. The old form of classic rhetoric is concerned with persuasion of the truth. It's focused on the speaker's ability to convey truth effectively so that people will believe it. You you remember we said early on that if you stood on top of the Acro Corinth, that hill in Corinth, and looked west, you could see the Acropolis in Athens. Athens was the place where this was. Rome was the place where this was at this point in time. The new form of Sophic rhetoric is concerned with persuasion alone. That's it. It's concerned only about the speaker's skill. Regardless of what he's talking about, regardless of the content, regardless of whether it's good or bad or true or false, there were speaking competitions. And people would speak and orate to win. Speakers became popular. Money-making celebrities. Their words were wisely used, but there was no wisdom in those words. Do you see the difference? You see, the Corinthians, we get a hint here, were using this worldly standard of wise speaking to judge and evaluate who they would follow, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter. 
they took a secular standard and applied it to the teachers in the church. And Paul refuses to do it. Paul says, I won't preach that way. He would not use excessive rhetoric to make himself look good, to make himself more impressive as a preacher than the content of his preaching, which is the cross of Christ. Because Paul preached the cross of Christ, and and to do so would empty that cross of its power. No. There must be, Paul says, a form of preaching that is effective and attractively communicates the cross of Christ such that Christ crucified is what everybody walks away with. They get the proper takeaway. If you're persuaded to follow the preacher, you've not been persuaded to follow Christ. If Paul did that, he would at the same time be the worst apostle ever and the most popular one in Corinth. And so Paul trusts the Spirit of Christ to use the gospel of Christ to save the people of Christ. Because gospel power results in unity. It's what it does. We must all come to the cross of Christ. It's the cross of Christ where we are made dead to sin. It's the cross of Christ in which we are united with Christ. It's the cross of Christ where we're gathered together and sanctified, called together as saints, together called into the eternal fellowship with Christ. So let's this morning, let's do the hard work. Let's do the hard work of allowing no division among us. Let's do the practical work of being united. Let's place the gospel first, reminding ourselves and telling others to find the grace and peace of God at the foot of the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that there is within us a desire to be well thought of, remarked upon, pointed out as important. And we confess that we, we walk those attitudes and values right into the church when we come. And so we're praying that you would make us to see our lives in the fellowship, in the body, as your collective people, as more important than our individualism. Father, make us united in your one true church gospel cause. Help us to be satisfied in the holy spirituality that you've given us by your indwelling Holy Spirit, by your spiritual gifts, by uniting us in Christ. And not look for other ways to boast, but only to boast in Christ and his cross. Sustain us in this, we pray, for your glory 
In Christ's name, amen.